read in great detail 1 Corinthians, I'm not sure that I would have decided to teach it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenge. There's a lot here that um, is complex. There's a lot here that really confronts our culture and our world, perhaps even our own perspectives and understandings. And uh, we will definitely face that today. So, in looking specifically at our discussion on spiritual gifts, we're looking at Roman numeral 6 in our outline of understanding tongues. And very, very briefly, prophecy is superior to tongues because it edifies the entire congregation. Tongues in the Corinthian experience are unintelligible. They have been adopted through the mystery, religion, ecstatic utterance model where only the gods could understand what was being said. The effect of being able to speak in tongues in the Corinthian experience was really emotional because it only affected the individual who professed to speak in this language because no one could interpret it or explain it. And in the New Testament pattern, tongues is a sign for unbelievers patterned after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when the gathering of believers in the upper room had the Holy Spirit poured out amongst them and the sound of a mighty roaring wind fell upon the area. All those who were around heard this and because it was one of the national feasts, there were Jews from all over the world that had come to Jerusalem and outpoured these 120 individuals speaking in languages that they did not know and had never studied and those around them were hearing the mighty deeds of God proclaimed in their own native language. These mighty deeds of God most undoubtedly explained that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah We pick that up as we would look in Acts chapter 2 at Peter's first sermon. So in contrast to that, to that tongue experience, prophecy is assigned to believers as others teach the Word of God as it has already been revealed. So last week, we looked at the procedures for tongues. Paul called for order in the gathering. There is a desire to put a stop to the chaos that ensued. He would do that by limiting participation, by only allowing two or three to speak in a tongue, rather than having there be a competition, everyone vying to be heard, many people speaking at once. Paul also required that there would be interpretation, so that if a legitimate tongue was to be uttered, that it would have the possibility of bringing edification to the entire church, because if one speaks in a language that no one understands, it doesn't have any value, it doesn't do any good. So in following these procedures for tongues in the Corinthian worship service, it would no longer resemble a group of crazy people mimicking something that took place in the idolatrous worship that was so prevalent within the city of Corinth. Instead, there would be order, there would be instruction, and this gathering would resemble what Paul would describe as a normal expected venue for worship. Now in our passage today, we're going to read verses 29 all the way through 40, and then we'll make some comments about that. Let's read together beginning in verse 29. Paul continues in this teaching now, he's going to lay out procedures for prophecy and then procedures for women. So here's what the Word of God says. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now, we're going to have a lot of fun today, aren't we? This is going to be one of these passages that would often be read and ignored or glossed over so as to not get into the nitty-gritty. Well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't like the nitty-gritty, but it's there and it has to be dealt with. So number six in our continuing outline, the procedure for prophecy. So in this procedural directive that Paul is going to give to those who profess to have the gift of prophecy, there is a distinction that needs to be made and understood, and this is a reiteration of something that has already been said as we were looking at the gifts beginning as in chapter 12 as they were unfolded for us. So remembering that during the early church, the gift of prophecy was present in two different forms. So there's two ways that the gift of prophecy is expressed. The first one is the one who is teaching the revealed word of God. So the word prophet is often synonymous with teaching. That is one of the ways that the gift of prophecy was exercised in the early church, and it is the same way that is that it is exercised in the church today. So secondly, the prophet was one who was giving new revelation to the church. Now, while this gift would have fallen primarily on the shoulders of the apostles, it was not their gift exclusively. So in the early church, when the Word of God was being revealed, the mystery which was not yet revealed, that gift primarily fell upon the apostles who were going to reveal the not yet known Word of God. In this sense, the prophet was revelatory in teaching and explaining things that had not yet been taught or explained. So the prophets were key to the growth and the teaching of the early church. So we see this reference in Acts chapter 13 verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, two individuals carrying out similar yet somehow distinct gifts, and he named, we, we, we see the names there, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So in the early church, all the way into Acts chapter 13, which was probably near the middle latter part of the second missionary journey of Paul, prophets were an integral part of the early experience in the church. So when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, which by most accounts was in the 50s, some 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the gift of prophecy 
was very much alive in both forms. Revelatory, that which was not yet known, and teaching, which is now the modern day understanding and application of the gift of prophecy. Now what is incredibly interesting is this. In the book of Corinthians, there is no mention of a pastor or an elder or an overseer who would be the teacher's of God's already revealed word. So Paul is most specifically speaking to those who believe that they had the gift of prophecy in that revelatory function, which is different from how we would understand prophecy today. Now again, backing up, if we understand, as I do, that the gifts are primarily speaking gifts, serving gifts, and then the temporary sign gifts... Prophecy in the revelatory function would cease to exist because the revealed Word of God is complete. So Paul is addressing, excuse me, Paul is addressing, addressing prophets who claim to be revealing new truth to the church. Now again, remembering the mystery religion, ecstatic utterance experience of their pre-Christian days, these Corinthians, who are now Christians, believed that when they entered into this frenzied state, that gods would speak to them, they would speak in unintelligible words, and that was some kind of a new revelation to the gathering. Although nobody could interpret it, it really didn't mean a whole lot. This is much of the background that Paul is addressing to the church in Corinth as it relates to the gift of tongues. Now, the same kind of idea is brought is being brought forward into the procedures for prophecy. So Paul is speaking, speaking to those who believe they have this revelatory function as a prophet, revealing new truth that has not yet been taught. So letter A in these procedures for the prophets, limit participation. Verse 29a, let two or three prophets speak. Just like with the procedures for tongues, too many people speaking or teaching at the same time creates a disorderly gathering. So Paul restricts the number for the exact same reasons. If we were in a multi-staff church where there were four or five pastors and all possessed the gift of teaching and they were at odds with one another and they were trying to be heard, it wouldn't be implausible for one guy to be standing before the group and teaching and somebody else to stand up and say, yeah, God told me this and go on and on and on. And yeah, God told me this and go on and on. And it becomes a very disorderly and a very chaotic experience. So just like with tongues, Paul seeks to limit participation. Letter B, evaluate the content. Now we find this in the second part of verse 29, and let the others pass judgment. Now what is Paul talking about? Well, Paul is talking to those who believe they have the gift of prophecy and that revelatory component, and he is saying here, let the others who profess to be prophets evaluate the content of the prophecy that is being uttered. So others would be the other prophets in the gathering. So this would most specifically apply to those who believed they were speaking new revelation or new truth, but it wasn't limited to that. If you were teaching teaching on the Word of God that had already been revealed, there is this call to evaluate 
the prophecy, the content of what is being taught in the gathering. Some may have had the gift of discernment, which we talked about early on in the spiritual gifts, which would would enable them to recognize the truthfulness of the content being shared, or they may have just simply compared the content being shared with what was already known about the Word of God. So limit participation... Make sure that the other prophets are evaluating the content of what is being shared. Now, we also must remember from earlier in our study of 1 Corinthians that there were numerous groups within the Corinthian church. There were as many as 50 different influential ideologies that would affect how they would understand the revealed Word of God and perhaps even affect their new truth that was being brought into this Christian environment. So Paul lays down this expectation that other prophets are going to evaluate the content to make sure that it was consistent with what was already known. So the claims of a prophet were never to be accepted just because they claimed to be a prophet. This is why John would write in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, thinking about the Corinthian past being brought up in a very pluralistic religious experience, and being a part of the mystery religion and that ecstatic utterance experience, do you think it's possible that some would believe that they had the gift of revelation and they would be eager to share their revelation within the gathering of this spiritual group of people? They absolutely would. So Paul is putting some restraints on how this gift of prophecy is to be exercised within the church. So careful examination was to be given then, and careful examination is to be applied today. Now, to our benefit, we have a completed revelation of God's Word, but there are many, many different interpretations of God's Word. So we should never blindly accept the words of a pastor or a teacher or an author because of the role that they hold. We should always evaluate their teaching based upon the completed revelation of God's Word. You should never say, well, that's what my pastor taught me. That's got to be truth, infallible, inerrant, and perfect. That's not true. Man is fallible. Not every interpretation is going to be correct. Not everything you read or hear is going to be accurate. That is why we must evaluate what is being taught against the balance of Scripture as a whole. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Letter C in the procedure for prophecy is prioritize new revelation. We see this in verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So again, Paul is directing this to those who claim to have the gift of prophecy. So if one of the prophets who is sitting there claimed to have a new revelation from God, the one who is already teaching is to defer to the individual that has new revelation. Someone who is reiterating what was already known was to give a prioritized place to the one who is going to speak something new. The first one keeps silent while the one having new revelation is given preference. 
So if the Lord was really speaking, excuse me, if the prophet was really speaking from the Lord, as prophets were assumed to be, assumed to be doing, this new revelation was to be given priority because God was speaking through the prophet. Now think about this. If you were sitting in a gathering in first century Corinth, and you were hearing somebody talk about something that they already knew or already understood, would you not prefer to hear someone speak something that you had not yet known or had not yet heard? Well, yeah, new is better, right? Because it's new and it's different and it's filling in the gaps of that which is not completely understood based upon the content of the Old Testament. By the way, the Old Testament is the basis for much of the the um, New Testament's writing. It is an explanation and a completion of what was partially revealed and known in the Old Testament era. So, new revelation was very important, but this is not an issue for us today. Why? Because all of God's Word has already been given, it's already been revealed, and while some might have insightful application, nobody has new revelation. It means something entirely different. When you hear a pastor, a teacher, or you read an author say, I have a new revelation from God, red flags have to fly up. And you have to say, whoa, what is this going to be? I need to be very careful with what it is I'm about to hear. I must evaluate this against all the rest of what Scripture says. But if someone says, I have discovered a new way to apply this truth to my life, you go, oh, well, good, maybe I can apply this to my life in the same way. Very, very different things. So, that is the caution that Paul is putting on here, is that prioritize new revelation, and then lastly, is kind of a repeat, speak one at a time. Verse 31, For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exalted. So by limiting participation and speaking one at a time, there is the ability for everyone to have this twofold experience. One, to learn. Two, to be exhorted. We are to learn God's Word. To be exhorted could be to be corrected. It could be to be rebuked. It could be to be taught, whatever way you want to understand that. But this is the purpose of public worship. The purpose of our gathering is to worship Him and to learn about God's Word so that we can rightly apply it to our lives so that we can live a life that reflects His goodness, His plans and purposes for our life. The public worship service is never to be a place where we can gather to show off our gifts, but that we can be impacted by the God-given gifts of other people. Big, big difference in how we would approach the worship service if we were just itching to share what we believe God has given us. So this is what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing procedures for prophecy, which which seemingly were just as chaotic as the execution of the gift of tongues within the Corinthian church. So verses 32 and 33 provide further understanding of why Paul has given specific instructions as it relates to prophecy. Verse 32, And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. He is summarizing what he has already said about evaluating the content. So what a prophet claimed to have come from God 
is to be evaluated by the other prophets. Now, what is the benefit of this? It ensures consistency and belief and it ensures consistency and practice because what we believe is going to affect what we do. God's Word is consistent. God does not contradict Himself. And verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So this directly contrasts the worship service that the Corinthian church experienced week after week, a month after month, this frenzied, chaotic worship service that was considered a sign that the gods were with them. So in the mystery religion experience, the more frenzied, the more chaotic the experience was, the more proof it was that God was with them. So Paul's saying that's not worship at all. God is a God of peace. He doesn't contradict Himself. Therefore, what every prophet says is going to be consistent with what we already know to be true about what God has revealed about Himself. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. Now, here's the theological point that is being made here. And I think this is helpful in us understanding what Paul is really getting at. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. Let me say that again. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. So to say that a little bit differently, how the group of people gather together to worship their God reflects the character of the God they are worshiping. So when the Corinthian experience, the God that they had been worshiping was a God of chaos, a God of frenzy, a God of no hold barred, anything goes. But God is a God of peace. God is not the author of this frenzied experience that you used to participate in and you are now replicating in your worship experience here at the church in Corinth. God is neither characterized by disorder nor is God the cause of disorder when His people gather together to worship Him. Therefore, the Corinthian must cease worship that reflects the pagan deities more than it reflects the God they have come to know through their relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. This is to be the experience of all the churches of all the saints. Now, tucked very innocently in verse 33 is a phrase that has created great debate within the field of um, scholastic evaluation of Scripture and uh, critical exegesis and, and commentaries and translators. So the, the phrase is this, quote, as in all the churches of the saints, end quote. So this phrase is either a conclusion to what Paul has already said or is it is an introduction into what Paul is about to say in the section that follows. So translators differ on how they understand this phrase, and it may appear in your translation as the end of a sentence, the end of verse 33, or as the beginning of verse 34. Now remember, in the Greek, there are no chapter or verse assignments. 
And so translators are left to make a decision as to when it's best to start or stop a train of thought. And there is widespread disagreement about this phrase, which leads into this next section. So how we decide this affects the object of the rhetorical questions that we find in verse 36. Now, a case can be made for both of these options. So, if this phrase is rightly connected to verse 33, Paul would be saying something like this, as in all the gatherings of the saints, God is to be worshipped as the God of order and peace. Nothing wrong with that, right? If it is, in fact, an introduction into the next section, and therefore connected to verse 34, it would say something like this, as in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. Now, in reading this, there are pages and pages of discussion about where this phrase should fit. So to avoid getting bogged down in the minutiae of this difference and concern over losing sight of the final piece of this instruction, I'm going I'm to really consolidate it here very, very quickly. I'm going to keep it connected to verse 33 because the same idea of in all the churches, all the saints in all the churches, that same idea is brought into verses 34 and 35 where it deals specifically with the procedures for women. So the phrase, all the churches, is in these two verses twice, which very clearly means that Paul isn't saying something unique to the Corinthian, either in verse 33 or in verse 34 and 35. So this is where the fun begins. All right, are you ready? We would prefer just to kind of skate through this and say, well, you know, whatever. Let's move on. Well, we're not going to do that. We're going to look into this and see what I believe this means based upon an agreed-upon consensus of modern scholarship today. So number seven, procedures for women. Now, ladies, I want to say if the hairs on your arms are starting to stand up, just, just be patient. We'll get through this. In a, in a very productive way. I promise you that, okay? Guys, if, if uh, you see this and, and the hairs on your arm stand up and say, finally, someone's going to come to my assistance. No, just, just be patient and this is going to take care of itself. So I'm going to read these two verses together and then we're going to go through a lengthy introduction and what I think is helpful for us in understanding it. Verse 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, I'll say this on the front end. There is a very large amount of information to unpack here. Some people take these words literally to the extreme and would conclude that when you enter into the doors of those church the doors of the church girls, zip it. You're not allowed to speak a word. Not allowed to speak a word. Just be quiet. Your place is to keep quiet. Is that what Paul says? Well, that's what, part of what we're going to look at. Is Paul banning women from speaking in the church? Is Paul a chauvinist who only wants to further oppress Christian women. Is the instruction that Paul utters here limited to Corinth only? And a bigger part of the debate that you would probably never even be aware of is this. Did Paul even write these words or was it later added as kind of an addendum by some translator, some transcriber sometime down the road? Those are the big issues that 
dictate the challenges that we have in this in these two verses in particular and then what comes out of that. So let me give to you some principles of biblical interpretation to follow that will help us. These are basic biblical interp- interpretation guidelines that help us look at Scripture and come out with a good conclusion. So the first question is this. What does it say? What does the Scripture actually say? You'd be surprised how difficult that is at times for people because they they read things that just aren't there. Secondly, what does it mean? And, oh, by the way, that's a much more difficult piece to dig out than what does it say. Thirdly, how do I apply, how do I apply this to my life? Those are the three basic guidelines that apply to biblical interpretation. So what it says is usually pretty clear, although sometimes the Hebrew to English or the Greek to English translation loses a little bit of oomph and it requires a little bit more explanation to really understand what it actually says. By the way, there are translations that will use words that no longer mean the same thing in our culture as it did at the time it was translated, at the time it was originally written. So that's also another challenge, and what does it say? So what it means is a combination of several key factors. The first one is this, and I'm sorry that I didn't include this as an outline in your sermon notes. I'd be more than happy to do that. Uh, just text me, email me, and I'll be sure to create that and send that to you. Several key factors in understanding what it means. What does the rest of Scripture say about this subject? That's the first place to go. What does Scripture say in other places about this subject? Secondly, what is the context of the current passage? That is incredibly important because you can take virtually any verse out of context and have it mean something that it clearly does not mean. It has to be found in the context of the passage and of the book that it's written in. This is why expositional expositional preaching and teaching is so important is you're, li- you're less likely to take individual verses or pairs of verses out of context. Thirdly, the third key factor in this is what is the culture, practice, or understanding of the people group that is being addressed. So, for example, if you look at the teaching of Jesus, he spoke in an entirely different language when he was dealing with the Pharisees as he did with the people who had no idea of what the law taught or meant or said. So, how one applies what it says and what it means becomes the result of the first two. And there's a lot of freedom in how we apply the truth of Scripture to our life But that doesn't mean that it's a new revelation. So let's go through these and break it down a little bit more in detail. So, what does Paul say about procedures for women? Limited participation. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in churches, in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves. So, very clearly, this contradicts our current culture where equality and equity 
are seen as the only worthwhile ideals. If you're not getting a flavor for the word equity, you gotta get it, you gotta get used to what the culture is saying about equity because it means something very, very different from what we think it might mean. So equity and equality mean something very different in our culture than what is prescribed in God's Word. So when we're confronted with something that we don't like, or that is very difficult to understand, or something that we wish wasn't there, our obligation is to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, regardless of what our culture thinks or says. Do you know why the culture thinks that evangelical Christians are extremists? Because we adhere to an absolute truth that flies in the face of the world ideals. The philosophy, the truth that's in our culture, it's not in Scripture at all. And so anytime the world, the world's system is opposed, they're going to dismiss it, and so we get dismissed as extremists. But what we need to remember is this. God's Word transcends culture. What we don't like, what we don't agree with, what we wish wasn't there, is irrelevant. God's Word is eternal, it's inerrant, and it transcends the culture that we're in. That's why we need to learn what it means so we can rightly apply it to our life. What Paul is saying here is more clearly understood as it relates back to context and culture, and so we're going to come back to that. If you read these words at face value, ladies, when you give them into the doors of the church, you're not allowed to talk. Don't even say a word. That's not what Paul means at all. That's why we need to understand exactly what it means. So let's start at the beginning. What does Scripture say? What does the rest of Scripture say about this topic? So verse 34b, Paul says, I'm sorry, Paul says, just as the law also says. Now you'll notice in your translation, law is all cap. Excuse me, law is capitalized. That means that Paul is referencing the Mosaic law as given by God to Moses and transcribed and passed down to generation after generation of Israelites. So very clearly, in understanding what Paul is saying here, he is not limiting what he is saying to his own preconceived ideas, nor is his teaching to be considered local to the Corinthian church because Paul is drawing back on the capital law. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law. We are no longer under the ceremonial and ritual obligations of the law. But there is still a moral law that we ascribe to. That's why Jesus didn't eliminate the Ten Commandments. He fulfilled them and He consolidated them into love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. That's basically the Ten Commandments in two. So, Paul is calling upon the authority of the law for what he is saying here. Now, the challenge to this is that there is no verse in the Old Testament that strictly forbids women from speaking in synagogue gatherings. There's no chapter and verse that says women may not speak in the synagogue. It's not there. So, why is Paul drawing upon the law to make this statement here? Well, rabbinical tradition that was passed down from the days of Moses held that position from the very beginning, and it's based upon 
principles that go all the way back to the book of Genesis. So while you don't find scripture, excuse me, chapter and verse that says women may not speak in synagogue, we find the principles that this rabbinic teaching and tradition were based upon. So let's look at these as we continue to understand what Paul is saying and how he is measuring this against the rest of scripture. Very familiar verses, Genesis 2. Verse 18, and then verses 21 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall cleave, excuse me, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the rabbinic teaching and tradition was based upon the submission that is found between wife and husband in the created order as given in the book of Genesis. Eve, Adam's wife, was created as a helpmate to Adam, created from his rib, and woman has come out of man. Now, I think it's very, very helpful for us to remember what is one of the more common phrases as it relates to this, is that God did not take the bone out of his out of Adam's head so that Eve would not rule over him, and not out of his foot so man would trample over her, but out of his side so that she would walk beside him. And it helps to give the picture image of what God designed in the leaving and the cleaving of the man to his wife. This creation order is far more significant than most people recognize, and it really dictates how we understand so much of what Paul says about the differences of role between men and women in the submission that is to take place. So Paul makes application of this same principle in the teachings that we would find about the roles of men and women as written in 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. So what Paul does, based upon the inspiration that God has given him, is he has taken the creation order as an unchangeable principle that governs the submission relationship between a husband and a wife, and how that that submission relationship brings its way into the Christian church. Paul explains that creation order has an impact on the roles of women and men in the church. So if we believe that Paul was an apostle and that God breathed into him his his eternal, inerrant, perfect word, is Paul speaking truth or is this Paul's personal opinion or his personal preference about how things should take place in the church? I believe that this submission relationship is foundational to our willingness to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, whether we like it, understand it, agree with it or not. If God's Word is perfect and inerrant, 
inspired by Him through these individuals that He has given the ability to understand and write it down for us, then we have to accept what God's Word says, period. In addition to the principle of submission found in creation order, there is also the consequence of the fall, which also identifies the submission role that exists between husband and wife. <clears throat> excuse me. John, excuse me, Genesis 3.16. After the fall, to the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So let's look at this in a perfect, in a perfect environment. In a perfect environment, the wife would simply desire to please her husband, and the husband would lovingly rule over her as an extension of the created order after the fall. So ladies, let me ask you this. How natural is it for you to just willingly submit yourself to your husband's authority as given in God's Word? Is it something that you say, oh yeah, I just, I love to do that. It's so easy for me. It's just natural. Is that what you say? You say, fooey on that. He doesn't know what he's doing. He needs my help. I mean, somebody's got to do something and he clearly isn't capable, so i got to step in, i got to do this. Isn't that the natural inclination that exists in the male-female and the husband-wife relationship? In the same way, husbands are to lovingly rule over their wives by thinking, what is really best for us? What is going to make my wife happy? What is going to please her? How can I benefit our relationship together? Isn't that what we say, guys? He said, now wait a minute, that's not the way it's going to be. This is my house, and I'm the one that makes the money to pay the bills, and if I want to go out with my buddies and play softball and go to the movies and have all kinds of hobbies that make you a single parent and leave every single responsibility at home to you, I'm going to do that because I'm the man. Now, is that what God designed? Is that what God intended? In a perfect world... The wife would simply desire to submit to her husband, and the husband would lovingly rule over her. But in the real world, the world in which we find ourselves, it paints a very ugly picture of the struggle that exists within marriage. What's very interesting here is that the word that is used, desire, in Genesis 3.16, is used negatively. And so what it says is, The wife's desire negatively is going to be for her husband, and it's implied that the desire is to usurp the husband's authority and rule. And then it says that the husband will rule over her, and that word rule over almost never has a positive connotation to it. So the woman, woman is going, the wife is going to resist submission, And the husband is going to exercise oppressive rule over his wife because he's physically stronger. He's capable of getting his way. And so this becomes the reality that we experience in our world. Ask yourself this question. Outside of Western civilization, America, and most of Europe, the rights of women almost do not exist. In much of our world today, women are seen as second-class citizens, and they're just a little bit better than a slave. That's the perspective of the vast majority of our world today. Now, is this what Paul means 
Well, that's what we need to dig out. We need to figure out what does Paul mean in these words that he is choosing to use. So Paul makes application of the post-fall submission relationship again in 1 Timothy as it relates to the roles within the church. And listen, it's two verses are the same. One on the front and one on the end paint a more complete picture. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Very similar to what we're reading here in Corinth. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So based upon the creation order and based upon the consequences of the Paul of the fall, Paul relays this submission relationship that exists between husbands and wives in the church, and it's rooted in creation order and the fall. So is creation order unique to any people group? No, it, it relates to every person who has ever been born. Is the fall limited to just Cain and Abel? Well, no. It's related to everyone after the fall. We all have inherited a sinful nature. We are all enemies of God. We are all rightfully objects of God's wrath apart from the grace of God. And so Paul is pulling upon non-changeable scriptural principles to communicate what he's talking about and the procedures that are to exist within the church as it relates to men and women. So Paul takes creation order and the curse of the fall as the principle as to why women should remain silent in the church. Now, it's important to note that Paul is not attempting to further suppress women or to keep them in his quote-unquote rightful place, if that was Paul's chauvinistic mindset. That's not Paul's mindset at all, by the way. For example, he would say in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, women today read that and say, well, yeah, that seems right. But I can promise you this. In Paul's day, this was an incredibly radical idea. They would have said, do, do what? Do, do what? Lo- love who? Like what? You know, I need a Q-tip, but surely that's not what you just said, Paul. I mean... In Ephesus, it was not uncommon for husbands to have more than one wife. It was not uncommon for them to to visit the temple uh, prostitutes with great regularity. And Paul rocks their world and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we just read in the last two weeks out of chapter 1 what Christ did for the church and dying for the church, redeeming the church with His own blood, His own life. So this radical idea paints the ideal for how a husband and wife are to relate to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Going back to the ideal picture in in Genesis 3.16, where your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, and a perfect example and a perfect model. So, submission for the wife... Loving your wife as Christ loved the church are incredibly difficult to do for both husband and wife. 
Paul considered women to be spiritually equal to men in regards to salvation. They were of equal worth and of equal value. And Paul would write these words in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there is equal access to the cross, there is equal value in Christ, but that does not erase the principles established in creation order and the fall as it relates to the roles between men and women. Again, this is a radical idea in Paul's culture that would have considered women to be of little or of no value, only slightly better than a slave, for them to hear that there's neither Greek nor Jew, and the Jew would say, Greeks, really? Slave nor free? Slaves, really? Male nor female? Female, really? Paul's saying, man, there's level ground at the cross. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. There's level ground at the cross. Paul simply is teaching different roles for men and women. So again, reading verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject, but excuse me, but are to subject themselves. So there's limited participation. Letter B, as we've already looked at, there is this expectation of submission. So does this mean that women aren't supposed to even talk inside the church? So what is the context of the current passage that we are studying. Most specifically, what is Paul dealing with in great detail throughout all of chapter 14? Paul is dealing with the unbiblical usage of the gift of tongues, this idea that those that spoke in tongues were spiritually superior to those that didn't. It was riddled with chaos and confusion over differing ideas and mutterings that nobody could understand. So this is the context that Paul is saying this in. Paul probably means something like this. Or excuse me. What Paul has been saying all throughout chapter 14 is that everything must be done for the strengthening of the church and everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. As Paul prescribed procedures for prophecy, and as Paul prescribed procedures for tongues, he's now doing the same thing as it relates to women in particular. So Paul is talking about disorder and chaos in the church, or those professing to speak in tongues, or those professing to have the gift of prophecy, or talking over top one another, and competing for the ability to be heard. So women are to subject themselves. That is the better way of understanding what Paul means when he says that women are not permitted to speak in the church. It means that they are to control their urge to jump into the fray and to be heard in the midst of this chaos, even if a woman may profess to have the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Paul is saying, women, subject yourselves limiting your participation, you're not to get involved in this chaotic competition in an effort to be heard. I believe that verse 35 
Verse 35 provides more context to this whole scenario where he says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So again, it's very difficult for us to get into the mindset of what was likely taking place in a Corinthian worship assembly if you had multiple people prophesying and multiple people speaking in tongues it would not be uncommon for anyone and including women to speak up and say yeah but what about what Joe said last week about this and this and this and yeah but what about what so 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 there is this urgency to get involved to try to understand, to try to be heard, to try to learn. And so this is what I believe is the way to understand what Paul means, not literally the women are not permitted to speak in the church, but they're not to add to the chaos or the frenzied worship experience that is taking place. So let them ask their own husbands at home. So most believe that the usage of women in verse 34 is now defined more specifically here with the word wives in verse 35, meaning the women should ask their husbands for answers to the questions that they have at home rather than blurting them out in the public worship assembly. This fits with what Paul said in the Timothy verses that we have looked at. Men are to be the spiritual leaders and should be adequately equipped to answer questions that his wife may have. So guys, when you go home and your wife says to you, what did he mean by that? Well, what does that passage of Scripture say? See, that's a challenge for us to be spiritual leaders, to be adequately equipped in the Word of God, to be able to answer those questions and not just go, I don't know. Oh, good, the Eagles game is on. That's that's not the idea that is being painted here. Wives are to ask their husbands so they can learn, and they're to do that at home so it's not disruptive to the worship experience. Now, what isn't, there's really not time to take on here, but if you go back to chapter 11, remember we're doing this in context of the entire book, in chapter 11, where you had the head covering discussion, and you had men taking on the role and the appearance of women and women taking on the appearance and the role of men. Paul says that this is backwards. You aren't supposed to do this. There's supposed to be modesty in the way that you come to worship. And when a woman took on the role of a man by shaving her head, she was giving a sign that she was a prostitute, which was immodest and and inappropriate. And so this is really built upon not just what Paul is saying in these five or six verses, or even in chapters 12 through the end of 14, but what Paul has built upon throughout the entire letter to the church at Corinth. There is a proper role and appearance and process for what takes place in the church. Paul is talking about the disruptive nature of everyone talking and everyone shouting out to be heard. And it's very probable that women were attempting to teach or correct others who were saying things that differed from what they believed to be true. Now, the last thing I'm going to say about context here, and this is really very, very important, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to reconstruct with precision the specifics of the culture and experience that Paul was addressing at the church in Corinth 
We can't know with precision exactly everything that was going on. Paul knows very, very well, and they know very, very well. So what we are forced to do are to find the principles that are in these verses and apply them to our lives regardless of what our culture thinks or says. That's the bottom line as it relates to culture, most specifically here in these verses. Now we're going to move on, and we're looking at summary section of chapter 14, and we look at the questions. Verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Now again, depending upon how we understood the little phrase in verse 33, it would appear that verse 36 is being directed to the women... Or it could be directed to the church as a whole, and most specifically to those who profess to have the gift of prophecy. And again, I think context answers that question, because if you look down here in verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, clearly not talking to women or about women. So going back up to the questions here. Paul is addressing those who consider themselves to be spiritual, those who had the gift of tongues, those who had the gift of wisdom or knowledge or of teaching. And so he is challenging their perspective about spiritual gifts in general, and he's also talking about challenging him in the instruction that he is now giving to them as it relates to these issues. So, what Paul says here, let me read it again. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? So, in these rhetorical questions, Paul is saying to this spiritual elite, are you the originators of God's word? Well, no. Are you the sole receivers of God's word? Well, no. Then stop acting like you are, and stop doing things which are not scriptural, or are in line with the teachings of the apostles. This is what Paul is saying to the spiritual elite, to those who profess to have the gift of prophecy, in verse 36. So he issues for them this challenge now in verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, the two big categories of problem within the order of assembly in the Corinthian church, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commands. So backing up to what Paul has said about tongues, what he has said about Prophecy, what he has said about the roles of men and women in the church, is Paul teaching the Lord's command, or has Paul gotten off the track and found himself perpetuating the culture of his day by, by trying to keep a thumb under woman? No, not at all. Paul says, what I am teaching you is the Lord's command. Now, this is the third time in the letter to the church of Corinth that Paul uses the phrase, if anyone thinks. That is high alert to the audience. If any of you think that you are the spiritual elite, their ears are perked up because, again, 
They know precisely what Paul is addressing. They know precisely the practice that they have allowed to take place within their church. So this is the third time that Paul has used this phrase, and it is always followed by a blistering rebuke. Always. The Corinthians consider themselves to be the spiritual elite, especially those that spoke in tongues or possessed the prized gift of prophecy or wisdom or knowledge. And so he again is challenging their personal spirituality perspective, here most specifically in those that consider themselves to be prophets, and he's calling upon them all to submit to the authority of his teaching, which he says is the Lord's commandment. Paul is saying, my instruction is not optional. So Paul is either speaking from the heart of God, or he is delusional in what God has said. So what Paul has said is emphasized in verse 38. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Basically what Paul says is anyone who disregards the word of the Lord, the command of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord, should himself not be recognized. These are Paul's strongest, this is Paul's strongest claim to his authority as an apostle. And what he says is this, hey, if you're going to disregard this as the teaching of the Lord, then you should be disregarded because you are willingly and blatantly disregarding the teaching of the Lord. Now, do you think Paul would say such a thing if he was not absolutely certain that what he was teaching was from the Lord? Again, this goes back and challenges us in what we believe about the internal and errant and fallible Word of God, even when we don't like what it says. So here's a summary of everything that relates to spiritual gifts. And Paul doesn't compartmentalize this and totally separate it from what he'll say in 15 and 16. But this is the summary of what he is doing here in this in this chapter. Verse 39 and 40. Therefore, my brethren... Desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. It's a summary of the entire chapter. Desire prophecy because it edifies the church. Speaking in tongues is not to be eliminated, but it has to have somebody interpreting it. Otherwise, it doesn't edify the church. Therefore, there's no value in it. All things should be done in an orderly fashion and according to these instructions. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? Everything should be done orderly and according to instruction. The problem is people tend to differ on what is orderly and what the instructions are. As difficult and challenging as this particular section is, I think we need to find some comfort in knowing that God's Word is authoritative, that it has come straight from Him. It's not based upon the intent or the will of man. It is what God has said. It transcends culture, all cultures, for all time. Women still have an incredibly valuable role within the church. 
In fact, in many churches today, if the women weren't there to serve, the church would not have anything to offer anyone because they are all of the teachers in the preschool area and they're all of the teachers in the children's area and they tend to be most of the teachers in the youth area and they're itching to be able to teach adults because they, they, they want to, they want to express what they know. They want to teach the, this God that they love. But there's roles and relationships that oversee those desires. And so what we have to do is find ways to exercise these gifts that God has given in a way that are consistent with His Word according to the instructions that Paul has given. Let's pray.